I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and Me Too to the war on civil rights and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. When we think about activist athletes, the names that most readily come to mind are Muhammad Ali, Tommy Smith, and John Carlos, and of course, Colin Kaepernick. This country stands for freedom, liberty, justice for all. And it's not happening for all right now. Less accessible, though, are black women athletes like Wyoming Atias and Rose Robinson, athletes who we may never see pictured with their fists held high on Olympic podiums, but who nevertheless risk death threats, bodily harm, and loss of income by choosing to speak out against racial inequality. Many of us know about Wilma Rudolph's skill at track and field, but we know less about how she used her fame to draw attention to a 1963 protest in Clarksville, Tennessee, to desegregate a local restaurant chain. Even today, we commend franchise athletes for their bold stances, but we know little about the origins of their protests. Like, for instance, in 2015, in the aftermath of Michael Brown's killing, it was Ariana Smith from Knox College Women's Basketball who staged her own protest during the national anthem. How do we situate Black women in the historical conversation about sports and political protest? What factors contribute to the marginalization of Black women in both athletic and social justice spheres? And what must we know about this history of activism among Black women in sports to more clearly see, appreciate, and support the activism of stars like Sidney Colson, Leija Clarendon, Naomi Osaka, and Venus Williams? I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and on this episode of Intersectionality Matters, I'm joined by an esteemed panel of athletes, activists, and scholars to explore the rich history of Black athletic resistance, celebrate the achievements of Black women athletes in the current political moment, and outline the hurdles and possibilities that lie ahead. Leija Clarendon is a professional basketball player and a leading advocate for trans, non-binary, and LGBTQ people in athletics. Leija is the first vice president of the WNBA Players Association and helped lead the WNBA Say Her Name initiative during the 2020 season. Sydney Colson is a professional basketball player who was drafted in 2011 after winning an NCAA championship at Texas A&M. Sydney is a member of the WNBA Social Justice Council and, like Leija, was a leading voice in WNBA's Say Her Name initiative during the 2020 season. Demario Davis is a star linebacker for the New Orleans Saints and a member of the Players Coalition, a group of NFL players working to end social injustice and racial inequality. 
In 2020, he partnered with AAPF's Say Her Name campaign to raise awareness about the status of Black women. And in 2021, he received the Bart Starr Award for Outstanding Character on the Field, at Home, and in the Community. And finally, Dr. Harry Edwards. With a career spanning over 50 years, Dr. Edwards, Professor Emeritus at UC Berkeley, founded the field of study known as the Sociology of Sports. Dr. Edwards' work established the Olympic Project for Human Rights movement and helped inspire athletes such as Tommy Smith, John Carlos, Colin Kaepernick, and so many others. I began by asking Sydney Colson about her experience playing in the WNBA during a pandemic and about the league's choice to make the season be about, well, more than basketball. Well, for months we've been at home quarantining like everybody else was. And it was difficult for us as professional athletes to, to be home, trying to work out at a level that we're used to working out and at a level that, you know, we're used to preparing at to be ready for a professional season. And so we were already probably out of shape and battling with that. You couldn't get in a gym. So you're doing home workouts all the time, or you're stepping outside to do something, but it's just different than being on a court. And then once Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, once those murders happened, the energy around the league was just totally different. Obviously, we were devastated. Several people had gone out to protest and march in their own respective cities. It was just really difficult for us to wrap our heads around not only being ready physically for a season, but then to go out and be playing with heavy hearts. But we had several conversations you know, amongst our own teams and then uh, as the WNBA, as a collective, a lot of people knew right away that they didn't want to play and that they were going to opt out. But a lot of people decided, you know, as heavy as our, our hearts may be, our current feelings and our temporary feelings in the moment shouldn't override the fact that we had a chance to do something remarkable, like you said, and make this season stand for something more than just about basketball. So inside the players' conversation, there was a process of conversation Uh, political um, sort of analysis about what was happening with the pandemic and how you were going to mobilize this season to to raise awareness of it. Um, Leisha, I I want to lift up a quote that is associated with you. Um, We're not just entertainers. We live in these Black bodies and what's happening out there is relevant to us in here, I guess, um, really a underwrote what the sensibility was that was beginning to develop. And I I wanted to add just to make people aware. So there was the Say Her Name work that you all did collectively, which we want to talk about. We also want to set it in the context of one of the owners in the league who on the campaign trail in Georgia was taking pictures with prominent white supremacists, uh, Chester Doles, and saying things like, I adamantly oppose the Black Lives Matter political movement. This is Kelly Loeffler. And her racist remarks and affiliations for me brought to mind some of the racist rants of owners of other sports teams like Donald Sterling. For those of you who don't remember, he was the former owner of the Clippers who got enraged when he heard that his girlfriend had been on a date with a Black star. Or Margaret Schott, in the 1990s. She was the former owner of the Cincinnati Reds and made offensive comments about African-Americans, about Jews, wore uh, or had a a swastika armband that she'd been gifted (laughs) 
by an employee and eventually the league took action against them. So considering the actions that were taken against Sterling and Schott, what did you make of the willingness and, and the pace at which the league dealt with Loeffler's racist actions and comments? Yeah, I think there was a few things. One, we know Trump was the president at the time, so you were dealing with a lot of like racist fatigue, honestly, like the, the stuff our president was saying. Um, was so ridiculous and we were so inundated with this constant information that just became normalized, sadly. So the thing she was saying was like, are we going to fire the president? Are we going to fire every person in the country who's made these comments? Like, yes, of course we should. But I think that was a different um, switch in the context of the world we were living in at the time where she's making these comments and it's like, well, she hasn't technically said the N-word or she hasn't technically <laughs> called someone this or that, but the comments she was making were, I think, blatantly worse than anything Donald Sterling had ever said. Um, the impact and the intent and the platform with which she was making those comments was um, just utterly ridiculous. And I think there's something we deal with, particularly in women's sports, is that we are constantly stuck between this myth and fact of like losing money and losing revenue. And so um, I think they were afraid of like, would someone else buy the, buy the Atlanta dream if she was out? And it's hard to ever know if this is real or not, because women's sports is always under this myth. If anyone's been following the NCAA lately um, and they're a nonprofit and they're out here saying, well, the women's game doesn't make money, but they're a nonprofit. And, and we know the men's game loses money as well. For example, we know MLS lost quite a bit of money. I think it was last season. Every NBA team does not turn a profit every single year. And there's actually WMA teams who make money, but we never tell that narrative. And so I think there was a few things at play that we got stuck with. It was like, can we get rid of her? Who will buy the team? Um, always this threat of women's sports folding. And then I think there was the Trumpism and the era of just like being inundated with like, she's not saying anything that's not become normal to say out loud, to say on Twitter. And, and it was ultimately up to the players to say, it may be normal now, but normal is not good enough. So, you know, I think it's, it's worth noting that the WNBA is largely, you know, a black women's union and perhaps the most influential one, I would say, definitely after this year. So do you think people see and understand the significance of your activism, the players' um, uh, determination? to oust Loeffler? Do you think they see it? And if not, what lessons do you think can be learned from the activism that you all you know, undertook right there inside the sport, inside the industry? I feel torn about people seeing it or not. I think on one instance you do and you get the splash effect that we did on like social media and it becoming cool to say like, align with women's sports, like people who are, I think even sharing stuff about the W to be like, oh yeah, I support women too. Like, you know, that's what's up. Like I've been, I'm down with the women and we're like, are you really? Like, are you really there supporting us? So I think you have that one trend of it becoming cool to be like black women, everything, fight the power. And on the other instance, um, I think that the lesson we learned is that there's so much strength in numbers and strength in our collective power. And that's what I, the lesson I've learned about organizing very differently than being an activist. Cause I've like got on Twitter since I was a rookie and I was like, Oh, I'm gonna tweet this stuff. Like I'll raise awareness about issues. I'll talk about things. I'll wear a t-shirt, but learning to leverage your power to do something like get a sitting Senator out of her seat. Like 
now we're talking about organizing. Now we're talking about collective power. And I think that's the big lesson I learned because our union, we're technically bipartisan and we don't endorse candidates, but the strength of like, you see those 12 players wearing the shirts and the fact that we got 140 players across the league to wear them. Therefore, like the union was partisan because the players are the union. That's the biggest lesson I've learned that like athletes have a lot more power than we realize. And for so long, we've only seen a lot of these names you've mentioned have been single athletes doing this work, but we've not seen a league. We've not seen the droves and number of people that the W has been able to get to support um, a candidate or to support an issue. And I think that's the future of activism. If we can get all athletes and leagues and unions to start realizing their collective power, I think like people better watch out. Indeed, better watch out. And let's just also, you know, say a whole new, you know, generation is now growing up watching this activism, normalizing this activism, expecting uh, this activism. So, you know, the longer term trajectory of this is substantial. Um, Demario, let me come to you. So we've been discussing how the 2020 season will probably go down in history like 68. It's gonna be remembered as a moment of wide activation within this generation around police violence. And at the same time, you stood out among many in your willingness to elevate the gender dimensions of anti-Black racism that often goes unmarked or, or forgotten. So I wonder if you could walk us through how and why you and, and some of the other players chose to shed light on Say Her Name and the wider status of Black women and girls. Well, yeah, it was interesting how that came to be. We have quite a few people on our team and leaders who work in the social justice space, myself, Malcolm Jenkins, um, Cam Jordan specifically, who do a lot in that space. So we know that it's important to connect to real world issues and how to do that. And so there was so much going on in 2020 where a lot of people were kind of getting caught up in the hoopla of just social justice and activism, but how do you turn that to real change? And so we thought of it as a moment not to get caught up in that, but to, to bring awareness to maybe an area that's, that's not being talked about as much. And it was an opportunity to bring awareness to black women. And Malcolm really wanted to, to highlight the WNBA and the work that they were doing because they were leaders in the space, right? They were doing it right. He noticed that in the Talatia's point, it was because there was a collective effort. It wasn't because it was just an individual. You could see it on a league-wide front. And that's what he was kind of saying. That's what we need to be doing on our team. And so we wanted to take on something to that magnitude. And I had listened to your TED talk, which we've talked about a couple of times, which talked about the intersectionality of race and gender and how black women often are left out of spaces. And so I wanted to make sure that we were bringing awareness to our black women in spaces that they may be looked over. So how about we use this platform to bring light and shine light on areas that would never get talked about. And it was amazing to see week in and week out that these stories were being on our uh, stadiums and on commercials during the entire season, stories that would have probably never got talked about, but they were being talked about and being respected and people were learning. And so that's kind of how that came about. And so it was an opportunity on two fronts to bring awareness to black women. The leadership that our black women and the league of the WNBA were carrying the torch in and also to shine light on our black women in areas such as health, education, um, the workplace. And so we were learning and giving information at the same time. And so it was definitely a unique experience. And, and you know, I, I can't help but uh, take the opportunity to 
raise the fact that it was such a surprising to some people um, uh, space to occupy that they uh, sometimes didn't know how to read it, right? So I remember after January 6th, there was a brouhaha around uh, your QB wearing the say her name, you know, shirt, right? People, even inside the black community, not realizing that he was talking about black women, right? That say her name was about the women who've been killed by the police and we don't know their name. There was like a huge misinterpretation about that and a, and a lost reference, right? The thought was it was referring to a white woman who was killed in the Capitol as opposed to scores of black women. So when, when you think on that moment, what did that failure to read and know the context of that shirt reveal about the work that we need to do? Yeah, I think it really shows the importance of the work that we're currently doing. When I think about that situation, I go back to uh, the summer before the season and what happened with Drew and the words that he used in the interview. And for him to have the opportunity to learn, I think that's why our team was so inviting of us having to do something in the social justice space as a team. I mean, the GM signed off on it, team owner signed off on it, the head coach signed off on it. Had we not had the events unfold, you know, the prior summer, I don't know if we'd have had that opportunity. But I thought about all my teammates like Drew and other people who would have never had the opportunity to learn the things that they learned. And me being raised by a black grandmother, being raised by a black mother, realizing like there are ways that I could be um, allying on behalf of black women and advocating on behalf of black women in ways that I'm not currently doing or wasn't currently doing. And so I was able to learn and my teammates, it was so much information in this space that we wouldn't have had the opportunity to have learned if events didn't unfold as they were. And, and it, it goes to the importance of people such as yourself and ladies such as WNBA highlighting issues and bring them to the forefront so that people can have an opportunity to stop and say, hey, I don't know everything. Let me learn some more. Let me dig a little bit deeper because that's what it's going to require on us on all fronts. Some areas we're going to be experts, some areas we're not going to know anything. But if we're going to, to unite as a people, and, and be able to exist in true brotherhood, it's gonna have, that's going to require that on all of our parts. We're going to have to stop being so fast to just see something and react, to take in and digest, learn, and then put out information based on having gathered all the facts. Such important lessons there. Um, so now, Dr. Harry Edwards, we've heard from Lege and Sydney and Demario about how they were activated to use their platforms to speak to the social conditions facing Black people. And I think some fans, as well as some critics, have read this as a new development. And critics in particular, those who uh, want just entertainment, have denounced athlete activism as un-American. So as the person who literally wrote the book on the revolts of the Black athlete, Show us how and tell us how this is historically situated. What do we need to know historically um, about the role of the Black athlete and social justice? Well, first of all, let me say I am so uh, proud of these young people after having been out there for over a half a century to see these young people come along as bright as they are, as committed as they are, smart enough not just to call people out, but to call them in like uh, the Drew Brees uh, experience, understanding uh, the only reason it was Breonna Taylor and not them, that they were not there. 
uh, to see these big, strong, powerful athletes understand that the only reason that it was George Floyd is that they were not there. And that means that there's an obligation to deal with that situation, not just politically, but personally, but more than anything, intelligently. I am so proud of this generation of young people picking up the gauntlet as they have. They are part of a 156-year-old struggle where athletes have been in the forefront, uh, going all the way back to Octavius Cato in 1871, a baseball player who was murdered while he was trying to mobilize Black people to vote at the uh, onset of uh, Reconstruction. Uh, he uh, was followed, of course, by Major Taylor, the first Black American superstar who, in 1896, when he was 18 years old, was starting his biking career just as Plessy versus Ferguson was being passed, instituting separate but equal so-called segregation as the law of the land. And of course, this goes through that whole first wave of Black athlete actresses, Jack Johnson, Jesse Owens, Joe Lewis, well, certainly Paul Robeson, a second wave in the post-World War II era with Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby and Kenny Washington and Woody Strode, Marion Model and Bill Willis in football, uh, most certainly Earl Lloyd and Chuck Cooper in basketball. Then uh, toward the mid-60s, there was a third wave of Black athlete activists uh, with Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell, Jim Brown, Smith and Carlos, uh, most certainly Arthur Ashe, Wyoming Atias, Wilma Rudolph. There were just a whole flight of athletes uh, who stood up and fought for things that we still are benefiting from. Then, of course, we had a fourth wave beginning with uh, Colin Kaepernick and, of course, uh, Michael Bennett and Malcolm Jenkins. Uh, uh, what Cap was saying was that this is not justifiable homicide. It's a murder under cover of the badge. And it is something that is uh, ongoing. It's uh, decades old. And we now have to deal uh, with this. And then, of course, the organized fifth wave of athlete activists, which came uh, with the uh, WNBA actions, followed by the NBA, where you had entire teams that were saying, wait, we're going to stop everything. And of course, they had followed through with the voting and uh, other kinds of uh, efforts. And all of that was uh, was extremely important. So you mentioned in the 50th anniversary edition of the Revolt of the Black Athlete, I encourage everybody to uh, go to your bookstore, get it now. Um, you say that the role of women in the Olympic Project for Human Rights was crucial but was unacknowledged. So what can you tell us now about those roles, the acknowledgement? What's possible to see now that misogynoir is uh, legible in American society and in pop culture in, in ways that, you know, we didn't have words for it quite like we do now. Um, so what about the women who, you know, protested and took a stand before Kaepernick took the knee? It wasn't, it wasn't in, in 1968 that they were neglected. There were tough decisions to make. We were aware of uh, Rosie Bonds, who in 1960 was actually sent home from the Rome, Rome Olympics because somebody saw her with a glass of wine. Uh, we were aware of what was happening uh, with Wilma Rudolph, who had taken a, a very militant stand in terms of uh, civil rights issues and so forth as early as 1963, as you mentioned. This was all prior to Title IX and parity and, and some sense of justice for women. And we knew that Black women were particularly vulnerable. So if they were out on Front Street, the chances are that they would have been just uh, shut down. But the people sitting on the desk most of the time 
were women. They were students who would come in and say, yeah, I can put in three hours. I can do it while I'm traveling around to other college campuses and everything, trying to organize athletes. So at the end of the day, women were vitally involved, but we were very hesitant to uh, get uh, women athletes involved because most of them were from historically black schools. Uh, traditional white schools didn't give women scholarships, much less black women. And what that would have meant, especially since so many of the black coaches and black college presidents were saying, hey, we can't support that. We can't support what you're talking about. We already can't recruit our own blue chip black athletes. And now you're saying, let's throw this thing open so that black coaches can also get jobs, so that black students can be enrolled at those schools. We are not in a position where we can support that, not to even speak of the fact that we cannot explain this to our Southern white legislators who give us the money to support our university. So we were very much uh, aware of the vulnerability of black women. And so we tried not to press them, even though when they stepped forward, like Wyoming Matthias did, we uh, readily accepted them. But we we knew what uh, what they were up against and uh, what the price would be for participation in the Olympic project for human rights. And let's remember that the making of history is often what gets reproduced and retold. So almost regardless of how well Wyoming Matthias might have been embraced by activists, history did not lift her up in the same way. And it's up to us as uh, those who are revisiting history and, and telling the genealogies of this moment to lift up those whose stories have not been told. So again, I encourage people to get Dr. Edwards' book and read about uh, Wyomia and other women who have been part of this and whose memory of activism we don't have ready access to. So I, I want to come back to Lasia and talk a little bit more about the challenges in organizing some of the players to take a stand. And I think all of you know that, you know, sports are business. I want, Lasia, can you walk us through some of the conditions under which the union took action to mobilize? And in particular, were there anxieties about the protests? And I'm thinking particularly about those who own the business, anxieties about permitting or supporting or facilitating this Black Lives Matter, say her name, protest. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult because at the end of the day, like Mario can speak to this too, Cindy can, of course, of like, at the end of the day, we work for a corporation, like the socially just as we are and all the work we're doing and how much um, the league does let us lead in a lot of ways. Like at the end of the day, they're a business, they're a corporation, they're trying to be accountable to their corporate sponsors, which we know means white people most of the time. And that coded language and those coded words that they start to use. And so getting the season off the ground, it was a question of, are we putting BLM as the organization on the court? Because that's what the coded language for so much controversy is around. Not that like, we don't really believe black lives truly matter. It's like, you know, the organization that's been seen as what communists and Marxists and all the words that people just throw around to undermine um, the work that they're doing. And so there were some challenges there with like, what are we doing when we say Black Lives Matter and putting them on the court? You have to go through your sponsor. We're sponsored by Nike. So we wear the shirts with Nike on them. And are they okay with um, putting Black Lives Matter on the shirts and, you know, dedicating the season to say her name? Like I was so adamant and like live it out of my mind if we did not dedicate the season to say her name and like put that on our shirts because we fall under the NBA umbrella. And so oftentimes it's, I think, easy for the W to get swept under and say like, okay, the NBA is doing a vote, sure. Like maybe we'll let the W do that. But 
say her name is so important to us, obviously, because we saw ourselves in Breonna Taylor. And yes, we all are in this racial justice fight together, but specifically, like we needed to see her name be said. We needed to see Black trans women's names said. We needed to see, you know, remember Sandra Bland and all the names and the people that you helped educate us on that we had no clue about, um, even as Black women, because their stories just go untold. And so it was definitely that push-pull between, you know, let the players league lead but the league also being like well we're a corporation and we have people to answer to and I think that's a tough battle we're in as athletes and even heading into this next season with some of the work we want to do we're still feeling that you know nitty-gritty and um you know Sydney can speak to some of the other stuff yeah and and Sydney come coming to you on that you know the reality is that it's business and it's a job and not everyone is necessarily similarly situated with respect to their preparedness to, you know, take up the, the risk of activism when, when your job might be on the line. So what did it look like to have those conversations? What were some of the uh, ways in which your, your, your sort of collective activism had to deal with concerns about consequences, about punishment? Did that come up? And if so, how did you all deal with it? Yeah, it came up. I mean, we had conversations where we learned that there were some players who were there, and these are Black players, who were there not, you know, with the mindset of going and being activists or maybe trying to go and make a point this season. They needed to go because they needed to make money for families, for themselves. And that's a lot of people's reality sometimes. Like, I think even if we go back, every time that there is a civil rights movement or uh, there's protests from players like not everyone is always going to be a hero not everyone feels educated to make a stance sometimes not everybody is always prepared to put their job or their lives at risk and so we have players who you know didn't necessarily want to come in and be activists I need I just need to have a job I need money to be flowing and when we met we didn't always agree about the approaches that we wanted to take but I think the really critical thing is that we had a whole league of people who were committed to say her name and to making our season be about black women not receiving the same attention as black men who were killed from state violence. And I think if things had gone differently in our league, like if our superstars or bigger names in our league did not want to make this season about say her name, then that would have made it more difficult for the players who are not making as much money, aren't as big of names on teams. Like it could have gone a lot differently, but it was really vital that our, you know, bigger names and our executive committee that people were fighting to make sure that we were making this season worthwhile, that they were making sure that they stood up and made a stance and that they spoke for everyone in the league. And, um, you know, that's black, white, you know, everybody. And for me, I know people are serious a lot of the times when you do things that can affect your money. Um, because that's, you know, like you said, when we're playing for the WNBA as a corporation, people have to make money um, individually. When you are willing to take a hit from sponsors or, you know, whomever, I think that that shows that you are are committed on, on some level. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it was one of the most cross-racial images that we have as part of the, the Say Her Name movement, all of the players, you know, standing, you know, with linked arms with, with Say Her Name, you know, the possibility of a strong, powerful 
you know, cross-racial statement about the significance of a uh, sayer name and the willingness to stand in and stand up for those who've lost their lives to police violence it has really been remarkable. I wonder if, if, if you both could say something about what you think the uptake was, uh, particularly from the fans. I was really uh, struck and, and deeply moved by the fact that we would have these sessions in which you would hear from, you know, uh, the mother of Breonna Taylor, the mother of Michelle Cousseau, uh, the mother of India Kager, uh, Corinne Gaines, how open you were to hearing these stories and dedicated to telling people about it. And, and I can say just from having worked with the mothers, the fact that you were willing to listen and lift up those stories, opened up um, uh, many of them to a, a new set of possibilities that they weren't always going to have to be witnessing their daughter's lost lives be afterthoughts uh, in the movement against police violence. It was sort of the low-hanging fruit in, in some ways of saying her name, getting people to listen to the stories and say their names. But then beyond that, at the beginning of games, having a moment of silence with the image of the women and, and, and some of the story told, it was unprecedented. So um, I'm wondering if you could each share either what you saw coming out of that uh, from your fans or what you actually experienced, actually uh, bearing witness to these stories on, for, for yourselves. Um, Sydney, I'll, I'll, since you have the floor, I'll, I'll start with you and then Leisha, I'll come back to you. Yeah, I think we have a, a special group of fans in the WNBA who are really supportive. Um, they may not agree with everything that we have to say, but I think that they respect the players in the platforms that they have and respect that we are always going to speak up about what's going on in our lives and, and who we are and what we feel is happening, whether, you know, if it's, if something wrong is happening and we speak out, I think that they do support us. And, and I think that that was shown because so many of the team, all of the teams in the league made sure that we had, you know, games where um, we would donate a certain amount of money if we scored however many points. And then we might throw something on for like our point guard led the league in assists. She would throw something on for her assists. Somebody's a really good shooter. They would throw in money for every three-pointer that they made. And then, you know, just like stat-driven, people would do things like that. And then we would have our fans match it every game. And we would have our organization match it every game. We would try to get some of our sponsors to match it every game. And we would make sure that the money that we raise would go to grassroots organizations who were doing this work long before we had this 2020 season dedicated to say her name. And so for me, seeing that our fans did that, like I said, again, when people, you know, are willing to give money to something and they're willing to listen to what we have to say, watch the videos that we put out about, you know, these women who lost their lives. I think that said a lot about um, our fan support, um, about our organization's support. And yeah, I think, you know, we tried to make a difference financially because as you know, running an organization is not, is not cheap, it's not free. Not at all. And, and especially, you know, running an organization and a campaign that deals with populations and constituencies that really aren't centered in how people think about the problem. So it made a huge difference that, that you all were willing to hold space for that. Leisha, um, uh, what, what's your sense about what got opened up by your, you know, sort of collective witnessing of the stories of, of these families? It was really powerful. I think one, I have to say one of the lessons we learned was 
we went to dedicate the season to say her name and like we didn't find out who started it. I had no idea that right African American Policy Forum existed, had started the campaign. And so I always want to go back and give credit to how like we didn't start partnering with you from the start of the season. We're like, we got to dedicate to say her name. We've seen this hashtag. We've seen it on social media. And so that was a good lesson for us to like, I just want to say that we're, and you anchored us in so much of that work. And then we started to get back to the root of like, again, like Cindy said, who's been doing this work already. And it was like a duh, like, how did we, how did we miss that part of it? And so getting the opportunity to work with you and the mother's network was like, I, it's hard to even put into words. It was healing in a lot of ways. Like we're on these calls at what, Cindy, like 10 o'clock at night sometimes because it was only time that everybody in the bubble didn't have a game on the, you know, three games a week we were playing. And so it'd be seven, eight, like late at night. And we'd be on these calls and it was such a gift for us to just witness and hold space to the stories of these mothers. And what I love um, about the Mothers Network and the Say Her Name campaign was that we only hear about their deaths and how these women get, their characters get slaughtered and how we blame them for why they were murdered, all the reasons. Um, but we got to hear from the mothers celebrate their daughter. So it ended up being more of a gift for us, honestly, and to see that mutual, the edifying relationship that came out of that, it was really healing for me as a Black person, um, as a Black queer person to just have that space and to see um, our stories told. And so that's so often what we don't get. And I, and I feel emotional about it. And so to just have that was really, it was more powerful than I think I ever expected. And, you know, I think it amplified so much. It amplified the particular campaign of Say Your Name. And then the wider, broader work that has been done uh, by uh, activists, Black feminists, allies over the course of history to find ways and spaces to make visible the subjectivity and the subjection right, of Black women to various forms of violence. So in the same way that Dr. Edwards talks about the phases and the waves of activism, of athlete activism, the same is true with respect to Black feminist activism and then the intersections of both athletes and Black feminism coming together in this moment. It is a pivotal moment. And at the same time, there is the backlash, right? We know that there's backlash to, to racial justice. And I wanna come back to you on this, Demario, because I think one of the more surprising you know, reactions to this season of reckoning that you know, caught the country up. We saw millions of people you know, marching in the street. We heard names being elevated. We saw people finally grappling with the institutionalized dimension of anti-Black racism. And then on the tail of that, we see organizations, faith-based organizations like the Southern Baptist Convention who have moved to censor the whole family of ideas that undergird this activism. Um, the convention went as far as to deem frameworks like critical race theory and all of these ideas as antithetical you know, to the Bible. I just read the other day, somebody was having a debate about whether you could be a Christian and a critical race theorist, whether intersectionality, you know, was Christ-like or not. I mean, stuff that, you know, for a person rooted in a humanist and spiritual tradition who, you know, sees racial justice through the lens and the articulation of, you know, people like Martin Luther King, who saw the demands for racial justice as in concert with faith. It's just shocking 
to see an entire sort of group of people use faith as a bludgeon to silence this kind of activism rather than to support it. So I'm keen to hear how you think about the relationship between your faith and your availability, your willingness to witness for and hold up these social justice projects to, to be part of this space? Uh, yeah, well, that's a great question. And I'm, I'm glad you asked me that. When it comes to faith, I try to generalize it into to two arenas, right? How I love my God and how I love my neighbor. And I think number one, your faith is about being connected to the creator. A lot of people can feel connected to the creator in a lot of different ways. And no, it's nobody's job or responsibility to tell somebody else how they're connected to the creator. And then number two, um, it's about loving your neighbor. And so you can say you believe the same thing I believe, but if I can see you actively not loving your neighbor, then, <laughs> you know, we just as far apart as if we were born on the other side of the world, you know? So don't say you believe the same thing I believe if you're not loving your neighbor. And so that's what we got to get to. How do we get to true brotherhood? And so anybody that's about true unity and true brotherhood, that's what I'm about. And so that's how I view anything that I'm going through. You know, I start there. Like, am I loving my creator well? Am I loving my neighbor well? And when I, so when I look at this space, the reason why this is so important, the reason why I say your name is so important to me, because it's really about elevating Black women's stories. And that's not necessarily in a victim situation. So it's not just the, 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 the tragic stories of the ones who have lost their life. And me and a teammate got a chance to be on the phone with a lot of those mothers and that was probably the best part of the experience for me, you know, being able to connect with those mothers. But it's also being able to elevate Black stories of what's going on like right now in the WNBA. I applaud, you know, uh, the WNBA, Laisha and Sydney and all the rest of your peers because they're fighting for social justice in the midst of having to fight for something like equal pay. That's what they're up against. And so it really makes me take into account how can I fend for my neighbor, my sisters, as best I can, right? So how do we create a collaboration? I got excited when Laisha talked about, you know, all leagues working together, because that's, that's the heart that I have behind it, is how do we collaborate in a way that we can have interconnection between leagues, not just inside of our leagues, but across leagues, you know, where we all can be on one accord and we can collectively apply pressure to situations that shouldn't be like equal pay. For our sisters in the WNBA, we should all be able to come around. And so that's how I look at my lens of faith. How do I love my, my neighbors? Well, and it's not just run up and hug them and say, I love you. It's about being concerned about the issues that they're concerned about. And whatever that is and whatever capacity that is, that's how we work together to make everybody better. Yeah, yeah. So, so you put something on a table that I want to come around to in just a sec, like how we can support women's sports and how we frame supporting women's sports as part of, of social justice. And I also wanted to tag what you affirm. You can be and can move in faith, Christian faith, and support racial justice, support racial justice through this intersectional lens, the idea that it is somehow you know, anti-Christian is simply a lie. And there are plenty of people who are in this space uh, advancing this idea. And I, I guess what this brings me back to, and I wanna come back to Dr. Edwards on this, there, there is a way in which um, there is sort of a, a standing sort of disciplinary orientation 
around athletes uh, thinking and speaking and acting on behalf of themselves and in the groups that they're part of. And, you know, we've seen the consequence of a protest for a whole generation of athletes. And I have to say, when, when, when we talk about uh, some of the constraints, when we talk about the owners, how will they respond? And I see them, you know, sort of sitting in their boxes, uh, watching their, their players competing against each other, you know, or seeing them compete against each other through the labor of other players. It's hard not to think about plantation analogies. I'm just wondering, is this a superficial? Is it anachronistic? Is it a overly and unfairly racialized connection? Or is there an institutional genealogy that we need to at least be attentive to that connects aspects of the past to aspects of this present? Well, athletes today have the greatest degree of agency that they've ever had. And that's the distinction between now and uh, in past, when I was a scholarship athlete, for example, uh, there was virtually no agency. But they have more agency now than ever before. But the other thing that has happened is that uh, historically, as has been the case with the police killings and so forth, the mainstream media has not only not acknowledged, they have denied the uh, realities of uh, Black life going back to uh, the plantation owner who said, my slaves are happy, and those enslaved said, we want to be free. There's been this definitional struggle going on. The greatest thing that I can see this generation of athletes bringing about is acknowledgement. Uh, women athletes have not been so much forgotten in the past. They've never been acknowledged. The thing that I like about what the WNBA is doing, the thing that I like about what Wyoming Atias did was that they struggled for acknowledgement. We're here, we're part of this struggle, we're making a contribution. All athletes ultimately are going to be forgotten, even the greatest will be forgotten. One, time will pass, a new generation will come on the scene who never saw them participate, never saw them play. Other athletes will come along and break their records and do things that they never uh, imagined doing. And the first thing you know, they're forgotten. But while they're here, being acknowledged means that they're in a position to make a contribution, not just to the development of their sports, but to that large struggle. So Laisha, let me go to you on this question that DeMario referred to. So in the last few weeks, there have been some pretty public conversations between the WNBA and some of the players in the NBA about uh, the position of the WNBA in the broader sports landscape. And I noted that one player described the WNBA as the JV team. And also you were met with some criticism for suggesting that NBA players and, and black men more broadly could do a better job at supporting the WNBA. So what do you want people to understand about your invitation in and how are you reading the reaction to what you had to say? I read the reactions that I got as like I hit a nerve because I got some pretty negative reactions of people, specifically Black men that were upset about my comments when I, I compared um, the lack of like people who Black men specifically who critique our league and don't see the connection to how white people critique them and how as a man, when you do that to a woman, it's the same thing. And it's extremely frustrating when people don't make that connection. And as a black person, that's where I'm like, come on, you get what it's like to be marginalized. You get what it's like to struggle. 
And it's particularly hurtful when a black man does it to a black woman. I identify as trans and queer, but under the woman umbrella, because it's like, you get the struggle. We're fighting the same fight and specifically in sports. And I love what um, Dr. Edwards can give us so much context because it's like, y'all realize you didn't get here overnight just by you being good at sports, right? And like not them not connecting the fact that we're under the same umbrella fighting the same fight for the same racial justice, for the same things that they're getting, you know, marginalized or the same things they've had to fight for their rights for bigger contracts is what we're doing. And so it was really minimizing um, and extremely frustrating to be told, you know, as women athletes, you just got to basically do X, Y, and Z. And you're like, we didn't just come out of the biggest CBA negotiation of our lives where we were fighting for our own hotel rooms. I think that's what people don't realize the struggle of the WNBA has been. We're like, we went on the road. And if you were under five years of service in this league, you shared a hotel room with another grown ass woman, professional athlete. And so to imply it's so simple as what we need to do, um, it was just frustrating. And I really frustrated at the lack of disconnecting the dots between race and gender, which is obviously your life's work that people aren't, you know, putting those. It's what white people say, well, black people just got to keep their hands up when the cops pull you over, just stop committing crimes, just, you know, don't X, Y, and Z. So then to turn around and tell a woman, like, you just got to X, Y, and Z, you're like, I'm like, I'm just done. I'm so frustrated. Um, but I want more of those conversations. You know, Twitter is a tough place to have them because it all and yet it is a place where we can get the pulse of what needs to be addressed, right? It might not be the place where we can do it, but when a tweet like yours engenders the response like that, it's sort of like, okay, here's a, here's a sore spot that we need to, to try to, you know, sort of figure out. And to Mario and that, you know, as a Black man who's taken the space that he has to stand up, you know, for Black women and girls, how... <laughs> What kind of orientation or how would you counsel black men to receive the call to arms, right? There is for some, the tendency to react defensively about the critique. I saw a couple of memes say, oh, something is wrong, blame a black man. So in what spirit would you advise uh, for our brothers, for black men to receive this call to community, this call for support? So to answer that first, I would say to black men, I would tell them, don't think just because you're black that you understand the, the plight of the black woman. That's number one. And if you understand that, that will make you stop and listen and, and, and learn how to slowly put yourself in their shoes. And that will change all your reaction. I mean, I was shocked this season when I realized there was so much stuff going on in, in, uh, in the lives of black women that I was unaware of and how I was, how we were collectively unsupportive to them, right? And, and not advocating enough, not being the allies as we should be. And we have sisters, we have mothers, we have grandparents, aunties that we would do anything for, right? So we would essentially say we would do anything for black women. Well, you're not representing them and looking out for them, having their back in, in these spaces as you should. That I think goes to a bigger conversation. So when you talk about, you know, the plantation, of old being seen today, well, I think that's a reality. And whether it is a true reality or just our belief that is a reality, I think we should look at the way that we're communicating when we look at the social justice and, and advocacy and, and whatnot. Like we should be looking from, instead of trying to go in the house and get support, we should just go from plantation to plantation and get support. Like we, the players could essentially rally together and get the work done. 
and support each other, right? And these issues would, they would be a non-factor, right? But that goes into, as we create these collaborations and leadership group, representation matters. So we have all these leadership groups, how many black women are in leadership position to talk about how we're addressing these issues. That's how you're gonna garner the support to go and support our sisters in the WNBA when they, where they're getting only 20% of the league revenue when the men getting 50%, right? Okay, all we gotta do is have a conversation and if they're backed by players in the NBA, players in the NFL, players in the MLB, that's a dead conversation, right? And so instead of them having to go and ask their league to be fair to them, we can apply the pressure to players alone. That's enough power in players alone. And I think when we take on that mindset that we don't necessarily need the house, we can just go from plantation to plantation and gather all the workers because we have those platforms and we have the networks to do that. When we change our mindset to that, then we'll be a generation talked about forever or we'll have create the change that, that will last forever. Yeah, yeah. And on on that point, Sydney, I, I want to come to you and and again remind people that it's a union, right? You guys are uh, organizing, you are promoting, you know, greater equitable practices. What more can you uh, direct your fans to uh, to understand what are some of the things that that you are you know, demanding some of the things that you are organizing for and, and how can fans uh, be supportive of it? Well, I think Leisha and Demario made good points. Like the most critical thing is that people examine their own lives and see in your own life how you're being discriminatory or racist, how you're being sexist, how you're upholding white supremacy, how you're upholding patriarchy. Like if you can't look within your own life and seriously self-reflect and be self-aware, you're going to have a hard time if you can't even be honest with yourself about the things that you're doing. But I think that for our fans, like what we want to keep doing as a union, as a social justice council is to continue to educate, amplify, and mobilize for action. Like that, that's our mission. That was our mission in the bubble. And we want to make sure that we keep educating ourselves and our teammates um, educate our families and, and, and our fans. And I think that's the best way for us to really try to implement change. Cause it's really hard when people are at, you know, our age and older to get people to, to legitimately change their beliefs. Like a lot of people have held these beliefs from their upbringing and their lived experience once they got on their own and now they're adults and they've been, you know, in the same swing of things for decades or years. So it's hard to get people to just change because you tell them something that is factual and that makes sense to you. Like people have to come from a standpoint of genuinely wanting to understand and being empathetic and hear people's stories that are different from yours and not try to tell them about their experience or tell them why I know that wasn't racism or know that isn't sexism, but truly just listen and educate yourself. And I think that's the best way to go about getting people to change their, their views. Well, Sunni, um, I think that one of the things that has become clear from your actions, uh, Lasia's, your entire league, is that the struggle for a, a more just world is everywhere. Um, athletes play an important, vital role, always have, and Black women uh, athletes are part of that. Um, as you all have said in various ways this year, we are not disembodied from how our bodies are read and disciplined in the world. We inherit the legacy of Black athletes 
their role in society. We can't will ourselves out of the way. That's why as athletes, we can't ignore what's happening in the social world around us. It impacts us brilliantly uh, stated. So with that call to action, I want to give a special, special resounding thank you to our amazing panelists, Dr. Harry Edwards, Lasia Clarendon, Sydney Colson, and Demario Davis. Intersectionality Matters is produced by Julia Sharp Levine. Today's episode was edited by Julia Sharp Levine with support from Amarachia Nakaranye, Rebecca Sheckman, Destiny Spruill, and the team at the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by subscribing and leaving a review, following us on social media, and joining our Patreon page for bonus episodes and exclusive content. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.